It's October 27, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Let's begin with some more on PMR. We're concluding our month on PMR, a campaign where we're supposed to underline and throw all things PMR at you to get you back into PMR thinking mode. Things are changing here. Um, we had some interesting uh, new reports this week. Uh, I want to point out one about the epidemiology. First, is a really good video on epidemiology under the therapeutic update tab. Uh, I think you'll find that really interesting. Uh, but Mayo Clinic data, um, the last data that came out, said that the prevalence of PMR is about 700 cases per 100,000. It is more common in women, 870 per 100,000 compared to men, 508 per 100,000. You know, a number of years ago, I looked at epidemiology numbers from a really good source published in A&R, and the, I want to say the prevalence of PMR was thought to be almost 800,000. These more recent numbers say it's more like two to 300,000 people in the United States that actually have this condition. So it is common, but it is still, you know, enough where we're not going to see it as rheumatologists and primary care doctors are going to see these patients. Um, and surprisingly, there's little research about how primary care does approach this problem, how good they are finding these patients and starting therapy on them and knowing how to manage them. There's a good video also on our website that we just put up under the therapeutic update um, top right corner on the website called Diagnosis PMR. Toby Hallowell, a GP in the in London, I'm uh, sorry, in the UK, who has a specialty interest in PMR and GCA, says that in the UK, 80% of PMR cases are diagnosed and managed by rheumatologists without the, I'm sorry, by primary care without the assistance of rheumatologists. Um, yet when I surveyed over 200 of you recently, I asked the question, who should be diagnosing and treating uh, PMR? And 60% of you said rooms only, uh, about 55% said rooms only. And then the rest were, well, PMR is going to uh, have to be managed by GPs as well. So we do have a, a concern here. And I think that the way you are going to manage this is by better communicating with your primary care sector about how to refer these patients, how to manage these patients, share information with them. Uh, this week, we had a lot of discussion about, again, the, what to use when we're going to go beyond steroids. And in last week's survey, we asked you, um, what's your preferred steroid sparing drug prior to 2023? Because in 2023, we had IL-6 inhibitor improve. Um, Overwhelmingly, 90% of you said methotrexate. In this week's survey, we asked you, how good is methotrexate at managing PMR as a steroid sparing drug? The majority of you said, eh, not so good. And so hopefully, uh, we're still going to try to find cost-effective therapies like methotrexate, but we do have, have a growing number of options that we can use beyond methotrexate for these patients. Uh, so I think that's all good news. A lot of this is covered in this past week, this past Tuesday, Tuesday night rheumatology webinar was uh, this week hosted by David Liu, 
they had a panel that included Len Calabrese, Sarah Mackey, and Wolfgang Schmidt. And they discussed a lot of different controversies, including diagnosis, including, um, you know, <laughs> steroids bearing therapy, whether or not GCA and PMR are the same disease or are split. Uh, a really good and lively discussion was had. You can see that on the website, on YouTube, and also on your favorite podcast channel. Moving on to other news this week uh, on the website, uh, the Canadian Medical Journal had a meta-analysis about the risk of opioid overdose, which didn't have to include death, but it could be overdose as uh, clinically defined or death from overdose. Um, and they found an analysis of 28 studies, 24 million um, people taking opioids, that a risk of opioid overdose is higher when you're using high-dose opioids. When you're using fentanyl, obviously the strongest of, of opioids. When you're using multiple opioid prescriptions at the same time, if you have a prior history of overdose, if you have a diagnosis of substance abuse, depression, bipolar disease, mental illness, and interestingly enough, pancreatitis it tells you how much pain those folks must be in that they get into trouble with opioid overdose. An analysis from uh, insurance claims from a Korean database looked at the incidence of bronchiectasis in systemic sclerosis. We know that systemic sclerosis patients, like many of our autoimmune patients, are plagued by interstitial lung disease and lung disease in general. Um, I don't think any of us would say, well, bronchiectasis, I don't think I've ever seen it or whatnot. But I can tell you the same would probably be said for RA and chronic lung disease and how much of that is bronchiectasis, where we know actually bronchiectasis is a small but significant uh, problem in patients developing chronic lung disease and RA. Well, in this study of, uh, of almost 5,000 systemic sclerosis patients, where they matched them uh, one to five with almost 25,000 non-scleroderma controls, the incidence of bronchiectasis was 5.3% in scleroderma versus 1.9%. So that's almost like a two and a half fold increased risk. The ad adjusted hazard ratio is 2.63. So it is a minor but really significant feature. I think it's one of the many pathways by which chronic lung disease and ILD can develop in patients with autoimmune disease, including systemic sclerosis. When you have these features, it's bad news, right? These people have higher morbidity and higher mortality rates. And that's why looking for them and being aggressive about looking for lung disease in systemic sclerosis was probably a really smart thing to do. In the same I guess autoimmune area is Raynaud's phenomenon and a, a large UK um, biobank that was looking at genetics found um, by doing very large genome-wide um, association studies, uh, they looked to see if there's um, any new genetic markers for Raynaud's phenomenon. They came up with two and the p-values here are really big time, uh, ADRA2A. Um, it's, uh, and then another one called IRX1. These are new candidate genes that may impart somewhere between, you know, a, a 10 and a 15 and 30% increased risk for Raynaud's, uh, in, in the UK population. Uh, again, I think that Raynaud's certainly is an early feature 
for a lot of diseases we treat. Um, it's not something you need to hide from, but it's good to know that I think that we have a handle sometimes on uh, risk factors, including genetic ones, um, that might be used later on uh, when trying to better classify a population and how to approach them. It'll be interesting to see if this pans out in larger studies. Uh, a study of Hong, uh, in Hong Kong looked at um, a large co cohort of RA patients, over 12,000 patients followed for almost nine years, and showed that the incidence of major adverse cardiac events, or MACE, was 7%. Specifically, they were looking at whether steroids were a risk factor, and everyone would say, of course it is, right? And that's also what they showed, that doses greater than 5 um, were associated with at least a two-fold increased risk of MACE events. But, and, and that with higher doses of steroids, you had a higher rates of MACE. But I think the big surprise on uh, and why I put this up was that doses less than 5 milligrams, that would be 1, 2, 3, and 4, was not associated with an increased risk of MACE when compared to RA patients not receiving glucocorticoids. So that's kind of surprising. We, we've often talked before about any dose of steroids having some risk associated with This is one study that sort of, uh, I don't know, doesn't negate, but maybe mollifies the very draconian statement that I've often been using, that steroids are bad for everyone, even at low doses. And it's possible that maybe you can, can get away with low doses. This is going to be up to you and how you proceed. Um, I think to me, there was a few other interesting pieces uh, that I, I would like to bring to your attention. One you may not follow this literature, but the um, the GI world was excited this week to see that a biosimilar of infliximab was approved by the FDA for use in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. What's so exciting about that? It's for the use of subcutaneous infliximab, the drug that in the U.S. you call infl uh, Inflectra, and in uh, the rest of the world, in the EU, they call Remsema. Um, you know... The makers of this product, the a lot of the original infliximab biosimilar work was done with um, uh, CTP13, which became Inflectra and Rencema, right? The uh, Those products were further developed by Celtrion, the maker of that, for use as a subcutaneous drug. And around the world, it's approved in many countries for subcutaneous use. The problem was that when I, I saw this data, I thought, well, this is cool, but it's never going to happen in the United States because in the United States, you get a biosimilar approved with very little data. It's called the accelerated biosimilar pathway, what's called now the 351K pathway, which is different than the usual 351A, where you have to do a few phase twos and at least two phase threes and then show efficacy and safety, blah, 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 a long time, sometimes 10 or more years, right? But with biosimilars, you can get them approved much faster based on one study and get all the indications, right? As long as you show that you're equal in efficacy and safety and, and you meet some other rules to show biosimilarity. Well, what happened here was a few years ago when they were developing this and getting this approved for use in the rest of the world as subcutaneous product. And by the way, in rheumatology, all rheumatology indications, not just GI, they did two studies, two large phase three studies. Um, that and submitted that to the FDA. They submitted their BLA, uh, their biologic license application, to the FDA in December of 2022, and they just got it approved this past week for the use of um, 
subcutaneous remsema, subcutaneous inflectra as a um, only for subcutaneous administration in Crohn's disease and in ulcerative colitis. They have to have moderate severe disease. Oh, and by the way, they have to have IV induction therapy first. And the subcutaneous product can only be used for maintenance therapy. That's the way the studies were done. And that's what the approval is going to be for. By the way, this has nothing to do with all the things that you treat. RA, PSA, AS, polyarticular JIA, etc. All the other indications for the TNF inhibitors and infliximab. Not applying here. If they're going to get this subcutaneous product put into uh, our RA patients, for instance, they're probably going to have to do the same phase two trials with subcutaneous um, uh, infliximab biosimilar. I thought this was very interesting because it shows that the, uh, and by the way, the name of this drug is uh, Zymfentra, Z-Y-M-F-E-N-T-R-A. Um, and again, it has to be given after an IV course of infliximab as induction therapy. That I thought was novel. This week, also a, a good report in MedPage today that we reprinted about antiphospholipid antibodies that they're probably not as um, big time problematic as you may think, and that maybe you should think about this more in certain groups. So uh, this article that appeared in MedPage today said that the often quoted number for uh, uh, lupus patients with antiphospholipid antibodies is uh, 25 to 40%. It ranges lower to much higher, but those are sort of like the, the median numbers that are often quoted. But most of the experts in the field say that that's just finding antibodies, not necessarily finding what you might call high-risk autoantibody levels. And, it, and by basically looking at that population, you can now stratify patients as to what their risk may really be. Looking at any titer doesn't really help you in risk stratification. So in this particular analysis, they, they said, what are the significant titers of APLs? And they said uh, moderate to high titers of anti-cardiolipin antibodies and moderate to high titers of anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 antibodies, either IgA, IgM, or IgG. And either one of those in association with also lupus anticoagulant. That's the situation. Those are the situations where you're now high risk, where you need to worry. And when they applied those rules to the population, they saw much lower numbers, you know, 3 to 9%. So this sort of a, a skewing, according to race, is what's novel in this report, that you only find it in 2 to 4% of African-American patients, but are often in higher numbers, up to 9% in uh, Caucasians and Hispanics. This was based on analysis of, I think, six different data sets involving over 2,500 uh, lupus patients. So, again, low incidence um, and maybe a little bit higher in Caucasians and Hispanics than you might see in, for instance, African Americans. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you found this interesting. You can go to the website to check out these citations and more. Uh, our We're going to end our PMR coverage on, uh, or mid-next week on the 30. On the 31st, but then starting next week, we're getting ready for ACR 2023 in San Diego. I hope you're going to be following us. We have a lot of great things lined up for you. We'll see you at ACR 2023 in San Diego.